Hello and welcome to BB on the Record, this podcast from British Bandsman. I'm Mark Good, editor of British Bandsman, and in this episode I chat to composer, conductor, orchestral arranger and session musician Simon Dobson. Simon discusses hearing his trombone concerto shift performed by the London Symphony Orchestra's principal trombonist Peter Moore and Tredegar Band at the recent RNCM Brass Band Festival in Manchester. He also reflects on his musical roots, from growing up in banding to his early thoughts about how music was constructed and how it made him feel. Twenty years on from winning the European Brass Band Composers Competition, Simon, who's now 40, discusses the relationships he's enjoyed with bands all over Europe. He also lifts the lid on his diverse, multifaceted musical career and admits he wouldn't have it any other way. But how is 2022 looking for Simon Dobson so far? I've just come off the back of pretty much four months solid work without without a stop. So uh, th- this far, 2022 has been busy up until last Monday. And so now I'm, I'm trying to deal with how to how to not have any work on, which is kind of a weird thing. I, I'm working all the time. So I'm now suddenly getting used, trying to get used to the fact that I'm not being chased for things. That lovely feeling. Recently, Simon, you found yourself in Manchester at the RNCM Brass Band Festival, where you caught a performance of your trombone concerto shift, played by the London Symphony Orchestra's Peter Moore, accompanied by Tredegar Band and Ian Porthouse. Peter had performed this piece at the festival around a decade ago, I think, but I understand your commitments meant you were unable to get to that performance. How was it to be there this time? It was amazing. I I felt so honoured to have anything programmed anywhere as a composer is is like you know that's good news so to to go to such a prestigious um concert series like that and to hear peter play yeah was really amazing i was so pleased to be able to be there um it was definitely worth the eight and a half hour bus journey (laughs) but yeah as you said i think that when the premiere initially happened at the the northern i think i was conducting in Norway that would sound about right because that's near the NM isn't it yeah I think I was conducting Oslo Fjord Brass Band in Norway and so I missed the premiere um so to be able to catch it 10 years later was really great and I was I was super proud of the piece and and pleased to hear Peter play and you know and obviously to be accompanied so well by Tradiga was incredible and those guys are absolutely fiendish brass band they're great we know that in Peter Moore as a player of the highest calibre and Tredegar and Ian Porthouse are so good at what they do as well. Were you involved in the, the build-up at all, Simon, or were you just coming to it all on the day? This one was literally an invite to hear it played. I mean, I, I, I was told it was being programmed and that was my involvement, and which in its own way was quite nice, actually. It was nice to have that responsibility and that um, sort of workload taken away from me. You know, the piece is going to be played. Here's the performers. Obviously, it's going to be really good. Come and see it. So for me, it was nice to be able to just turn up and know that the work was in safe hands. You know, like I often think as a composer, once you've written something, once you're done with it and it's been premiered, it's, it's not really yours anymore. You know, it, it, it sort of belongs to the world. It was nice not to have much say, to be honest. 
The artistic director of the RNCM Brass Band Festival is Paul Hindmarsh, someone who works incredibly hard to bring the festival to fruition and someone who programmes some fascinating concerts. There isn't really anything else like the RNCM Festival. How important a fixture do you think it is in the UK banding calendar, Simon? I think it's um, as important as any competition. I think it's, if not more in some ways, you know, like people always talk about the UK brass band contesting scene being the lifeblood. It gives everyone a reason to improve and a reason to, to innovate. But I think so does this festival. I think it's the only thing like it. It's the only festival, uh, the only concert series possibly outside of the proms that ha- every year tries to, you know, innovate and tries to celebrate. And I think it's 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 one of a kind. It puts all of the best brass band play- players and um, ensembles in the world together in a very small space, a very small time. And it's, it's never anything short of breathtaking. Looking back at your own musical career, Simon, it's a diverse and a fascinating one. And it's a career which has often had brass bands involved at least somewhere along the way. Give me a rough idea of the early musical journey for a young Simon Dobson and how the world of composing became part of your life. That's an interesting question. So um, my dad um, played in brass bands. And so brass bands really were my earliest, like, you know, like most other people in brass bands, it's a family thing. So I um, was was sort of born into it, I suppose. My earliest memories of are of the old Banks' Brewery brass band in the Midlands playing. Um, I think my literally one of my earliest memories is, is them playing Year of the Dragon a very long time ago, very long time, in the 80s for sure. It just was something that you fall into. But I, I loved it, you know, like it was something I wanted to do from the very first, earliest ages. And, you know, I, I, I started playing when I was five. And then by the time I was 11, I was in kind of sat on bottom third corner in the local uh, sort of top division band, Bobbingtown Band. My my dad was sat on second double B flat and I was on third corner. So we got to like kind of share that. And that was real nice. And he, you know, he was also my first teacher. And thinking back, a very, very patient one. <laughs> but I think it wasn't long before I realised um, that music was a much wider thing for me something that just consumed me from a very young age it fascinated me when other things that should have done you know like everyone's into football or everyone's into whatever you are supposed to be into when you're a kid and for me it was only ever music really um and very early on the mechanics of music i would sit at a piano in my house and try and work out why certain lines and why certain chord changes gave me a certain feeling i didn't i didn't understand really why that was at that age i hadn't didn't have the musical language to to describe what it was i was feeling but i remember say i think i was probably 10 10 years old sat at the piano trying to transcribe the middle movement of uh, year of the dragon the the, the the kind of hymn from the middle movement of the year of the dragon and trying trying to work out why it was that that piece made gave me a certain emotion and i think it wasn't long after that when I started taking, I have piano lessons anyway, but then I started taking music theory lessons every single week. And then really I started, it was all experimentation. I'd start dissecting pieces of music that were around me, looking at scores, trying to transcribe pop melodies. Um, yeah, I was just fascinated with the nuts and bolts of music and why certain configurations of harmony and rhythm could make a human feel a certain way. Aside from my sort of technical kind of yearning, reaching, had... Uh, a want to kind of apply an artistic uh, sort of framework to that, um, you know, and then I could be the person giving others those feelings through music. When I worked out that that was a thing, it was kind of 
oh, right, well, that's what I want to do for my life then. It wasn't a difficult choice to make. In fact, it's never really been a choice. You know, since I was 12 or 13, I've known that I wanted to make music for my living. I just didn't know exactly how that was going to be possible. Um, and I still think that most weeks. <laughs> it's still it's still kind of knife-edge career. But at the same time, I don't think there's ever really been anything other than this, is, this has always been my path. It was 20 years ago this year that you won the European Brass Band Composers Competition with your piece Four Sketches, A Homage to Britain. You've also gone on to win something like three British Composer Awards so far. Have the awards and prizes brought greater recognition, Simon, and perhaps acted as a springboard in any way? I think in some ways, yes. I mean, I think we have to be honest Brass bands, I mean, has to be, have to be honest about our place in the musical world. And it's, a, it's an uphill battle and it always has been and it, I suspect always will be. So, yes, there's been some recognition. The other parts of my career that have, that have moved alongside have helped that as much as anything else. After I won the third one, 18 perhaps, 2018, was for the Turing test. And I think after that one, uh, some people actually did kind of sit up and take notice of, of myself and of brass bands. And that was more important to me, really, um, was that, you know, that was acknowledged, the fact that brass bands can make weird and wonderful sounds, um, you know, modern sounding soundscapes. That was an important thing to me as much as the fact that I, you know, was lucky enough to win an award. So I think, yeah, there has been some recognition, but I think it's also been because of the other sides of my career. I'm pretty, I'm pretty full on as a musician. Like, I don't really ever stop. I, and I also not very good at sticking to one thing. So like, you know, there's always one part of my career or two parts of my career, which are like vying for time and control over the over the other parts. Yeah, it's hard to say whether there's ever been really like, yeah, a direction. I think it's always just been me like scrabbling for more music, more work, you know. Your student days were spent at the Royal College of Music in London and you received a commission from the London Philharmonic when you were still a student. How do you look back on those days? Did they help to broaden your musical horizons, perhaps? Oh, for definite, yeah. I mean, as much as anything possibly could. You know, I, I came from a village, in a, t a little tiny town in Cornwall, and really only knowing brass band music and any of the music that were on my syllabus when I studied A-level. And then suddenly I was at the World College of Music, um, and it was a real baptism of fire. You know, I, I remember walking up those steps beautiful old steps of this incredible building and hearing um now what was the first thing i heard it was a, a pianist called dominic john playing petrushka on the piano and i was just like wow what is this and then my first month was just an absolute whirlwind of of new music and new emotions and new colors and i think through my teacher my, my teacher was a guy called timothy salter who was a really interesting character he we were from different worlds completely um, he didn't understand brass bands at all and just thought they were the weirdest, sort of quirkiest things. He didn't, he didn't understand. I remember one day I walked in and he'd gone to the library and gotten out a brass band score. And it was a Vaughan Williams piece, I think. I can't remember what, but it was a Vaughan Williams piece. And he pointed to the bass trombone and he said, Simon, why is this the only instrument in concert pitch? <laughs> and I sort of went, I don't really know. I, I don't have a good answer for you there. So we were from different worlds, but at the same time, he was really nurturing and he was a really cool guy. But he he wrote um, miniatures. He wrote woodwind miniatures mostly. And I think that's kind of, I, I, I can definitely see some of his writing, his kind of filigree, finicky kind of writing in, in, in my style. 
So I would go to him with an issue or a problem or some sort of thing I couldn't understand about my writing. And he'd go, well, have a think about this and would show me, you know, a piece by Messian or a piece by Bartok or a piece by Bach, any of these musicians who then all became huge inspirations to me later on in my compositional life. And I think, yeah, certainly the Royal College of Music really broadened my horizons. But then I also have thoughts about how much you can really teach artistic endeavour. So you can certainly teach technique. You can teach anyone to lay bricks, but you can't teach them to build a cathedral. And he was good at kind of reining me in and giving me like a good solid framework. Uh, but honestly, I believe a lot of the artistic side of what I do has been learned since the Royal College of Music. I had to unlearn a lot of, a lot of stuff, I think. It's quite an archaic place, you know. If I, if I look back now and think about what the other conservatories were up to at that point, they were probably all more progressive than the Royal College of Music. You know, there's, there's a sort of joke amongst like College of Music composer alumni. It's like, what did you do? What did you write at the Royal College of Music? And you say like, well, Fuxi and Counterpoint for like four years. So I definitely, I came out with a good grounding, but I think most of what's happened to me in my career has been learned since just through having to do stuff. Let's turn now, Simon, to your piece of the podcast. Tell me why you've chosen this work. So, I mean, I guess it is a little narcissistic. I'd like for other people to hear a piece of music that I wrote uh, a good while ago now, probably about six, seven years ago. Um, I released my first full album of compositions, um, an album called Euneurophrenia. And there's a, a tune on that album called Pseudoscience, um, which I guess is, I guess you would call jazz fusion. Um, so it's um, myself and my, my saxophone playing uh, colleague Dan Hillman on, on, on the horns and then the, the trumpet solo across the track is by the great Tom Gatch um, so it's a pretty cool track it's kind of got flavours of kind of there's some like Latin feel in there there's some rock thing going on it's definitely a, a bit of a hat tip to Snarky Puppy who are a great band but yeah it's all about Tom Gatch's playing really he's an absolute genius <laughs>
Pseudoscience, music from the album Unirophrenia. It featured, among others, the trumpet playing of Thomas Gange, and was composed and chosen as the piece of the podcast by my guest today, Simon Dobson. Touching on things from a banding perspective again, at different stages during your career, Simon, you've enjoyed attachments to bands as composer-in-residence, Leyland, Brickhouse and Rastrick, and WFEL Ferry among them. How did you enjoy that sort of link to a band? Did it help to build some more familiarity between you and the players? Oh, for sure. I mean, it all feels like a very long time ago now. And I think how I was able to interact and how I was treated has changed a lot. I was still very much a young then, I think. And I was sort of treated as such. But the, the Brickhouse thing was very, very short-lived. That was one piece. And, um, and Leyland was great. I worked quite closely with, with Jason Katsakaris, who was a brilliant, brilliant person, great conductor, really open and progressive in terms of what he wanted or allowed me to write for the band. And yeah, for sure, it did help to get to know these players and find out the limits of what, you know, brass bands, conductors, players and audiences would, would be into. But really, I think it's the much later ones that helped more. I've, I've done a lot of work with Stavanger Brass Band. I've written three three CIDIS programmes for them, um, two that won, helped them win, I should say. And then more recently, I've written two works for Valesia. And I think, you know, they're just an astonishing band, absolutely astonishing brass band. I've also written music for the Paris Brass Band. They were very open. I wrote the piece that has the the kind of the most difficult subject matter I've ever written. I wrote for them. I wrote a piece called Horror Show for Paris Brass Band about the terrorist attack at the Vatican in, in Paris. That was a really important relationship, I think, because I got to know the players and... Uh, which was something that was needed to enable me to interact musically with them in that way, I think. I couldn't have just said, right, here's a piece by an English composer about a terrible tragedy that happened in Paris. That would have been really inappropriate. So I think getting to know them was a really valuable artistic relationship. And then, you know, with the Valesia lot, that was just so exciting, that relationship, because it was like, players can do these things? You know, like, can I write these things for them? Can I? Yeah, I can, because they can just play it. You know, can I do, can I write things like that for Euphonium? Yeah, I can because I've got Glenn Van Lloyd on Euphonium. <laughs> you know, like looking at my score, thinking, is it even fair to ask a player to do that? And then it's okay. I've got Glenn on Euphonium. I can he can do anything. <laughs> so that was a really exciting thing. I wrote a piece for them called Glass, um, and that's probably the most I've ever thrown at a band. I would say I wrote one more test piece after that called Venom, which I wrote for Yaren Brass Band in Norway. And I think maybe that's the most I've ever thrown at any brass band. That was kind of 23 minutes of vitriol and screaming into the void from me, from on my part, that was. And I sort of thought that after I'd written that one, that might be me. That might be that might be all I write for brass band for, for, for a while. We'll see about that, I guess. It's not only as a composer that you've been involved with bands. You've done rather a lot of conducting and you've conducted bands internationally. Is that something you enjoy doing and could you potentially see yourself doing some more of it in years to come? There is a plan for me to be in Norway at some point later this year. Um, and that, that would be the first brass band conducting I'll have done in about five or six years. Um, through choice. Um, I mean, as I say through choice, I mean, it, we have to be honest with ourselves as creatives and musicians that you do go in and out of favour and you're as good as your last result, your last piece, whatever. And so I feel like, you know, my place in the brass band movement at the moment is is somewhat removed. Um, 
I've not conducted for a while. It's been a while since I've had a kind of test piece commission. And I think partly that is valid thing. You know, there are other styles of direction and, and conducting that are more favorable to mine at the moment. I'm, I'm not really, don't really care that much about results. <laughs> um, and I know that's just definitely not a, a thing that's favorable in brass bands, of course. And, you know, the same with writing, you know, other, it's time for other people to write music and, I don't want to get overplayed. I don't want to get over commissioned. I don't want to get boring. And I, and I personally don't want to write the same thing. I don't, you know, the second I'm worried about repeating myself, that's when I should stop writing music for brass bands. And I feel like I'd sort of got into that place. I think I've done like 10 elite division test pieces. You know, if you think that that's just over, that's probably over three hours of music, of contemporary music for brass band. I feel like that's enough for, for, for a while, you know. But I did very much enjoy my conducting, very, very much so. Uh, I had a really close relationship with Oslofjord Brass Band in Norway. And we did about five years together and we had some great results, some really good times, some great parties, some great concerts. And, and that was a really enjoyable relationship. Um, I'm quite happy taking things in a slightly different direction at the moment, but it's still my first love. Just one more on the band conducting side of things. I think earlier in your career you enjoyed some involvement with the National Youth Brass Band of Great Britain and conducted under Bram Tovey. How did you enjoy that experience? Uh, that was that was um, another kind of life changer in its own way, I think. Bram is obviously and deservedly one of the best musicians in the world. You know, he's just such a wonderful conductor, such a such a true artist um and I'm sure as hell wasn't when I met him you know like I was I was someone who, who had dreams of that kind of stuff but definitely was such a long way off pace and you know had such a limited knowledge of things and Bram really helped open my eyes and he you know he looked out for me as well like he was always on the end of the phone he was he's a very kind man Bram is and he believed in me and gave me chances when all when very few other people did you know, I, I basically had very little work by the time I got to do that, that, that year or two with Bram. And, and things did open up for me after that. You know, I started getting work abroad and that kind of thing. But really, it was just, it was, it was integrity and, and, and artistry that Bram taught me. And he taught me a few things I really think have been utterly invaluable in my career. Um, so I conduct a lot of orchestras now. I mean, I, I, I doubt... I doubt you're going to see me conducting the LSO doing Mahler anytime soon. However, I did, there's a lot of kind of session orchestras I work with. I have my own orchestra in London, the Parallax Orchestra. I've, I've conducted a, a bunch of different orchestras. I've done some, a lot of session stuff with the Royal Philharmonic. And a few things that Bram taught me, I truly believe, have, have, have given me a bit of standing in that world. And the first one is about being vulnerable. You know, it, there's nothing worse than knowing for sure as a player that the conductor has just picked on somebody to say they're wrong to shape to save themselves an ego bashing and that's just been the most important thing anyone's ever taught me i think you know i've i've never i mean i, I i'm taking that as a much wider piece of advice than just don't pick on people but I've, I've always made sure when i'm in front of an orchestra if i mess up i apologize and i move on and I try to be as open and as vulnerable as I can as a conductor, which is not very, you know, it's, it's not a world that encourages vulnerability. That's for sure. There are very few, it's quite a cutthroat world. Um, but when you're actually in front of an orchestra, if you can be as truthful and vulnerable as you can, then that really pays dividends. And I think it did for me. 
at any musical business situation, anything I, in any personal endeavor, the most competent and in control and at home I ever feel is when I'm on, on a podium in front of an orchestra. And I think a lot of that has come from Bram's, Bram's advice, you know, just be open, be honest, be vulnerable. And, you know, I try and stick to those things. And, and that's, that seems to be the best way to do things. And, you know, and Bram is the proof of that. You've said yourself, Simon, you enjoy this wonderfully diverse musical career. It might involve conducting sellout shows with rock and metal bands on stage. Another day it might be orchestral arranging or it could be touring as a session musician. How do you enjoy the sheer variety that comes upon you, especially, hopefully, as things continue to relax and we hopefully head in the right direction? They say variety is the spice of life, don't they? I mean, I, I, for, me, for me, it's... I'm just never settled. I, I can never do just one thing. You know, if I, if I, and I'm starting to realise it at the moment, for the last 14 months, pretty much all I've done is orchestral arrangement. And I'm already like yearning for something else to kick off. I've got some good leads on some, on some kind of cool orchestral projects happening in the next couple of years. And I'm hoping that that now takes over a little bit. Um, I have to do a million things. I have to do a million different things. And part of that is, is, is to survive. And I think, you know, unless you're really, really, really lucky and incredibly talented, musicians these days can't do just one thing. It's not a possibility. So for me, I, I, I have to do a lot of things artistically to, to kind of fulfill and enrich myself in the way I want to I want to progress and also to pay my rent. You know, I have to do a bunch of stuff. You know, like a couple of years ago, I played 35 festivals in one summer. I was in four bands and I was just spent almost my entire summer in a splitter on the M25, you know, being smelly in a smelly van full of smelly people, <laughs> driving between festivals, being exhausted. But for that one hour each time, it's like, you know, it's, everything's worth it. And I, I feel like, you know, my career is probably always going to be a bit of this and a bit of that. And I, I, I've also kind of made peace with the fact that, that probably means I'm never going to reach the top of any, any strand of my career. I'm never going to be the best composer or best orchestral arranger or the best trumpet player or the best conductor i'm never going to reach the heights but i will hopefully have a fulfilling career that has lots of bits in it and i i really hope that's the way it goes i mean it seems to have done so far i know that my next year is there's definitely a commission on the horizon i'm going to make my third album of, of solo recordings i have a possible two album deal uh, of a record uh, of orchestral arranging to do and hopefully a conducting tour with an orchestra and if all of those things come off or if indeed any of those things come off I'll be happy I mean I, ha I have to do lots of things otherwise I get bored <laughs> well as we approach the final moments of our conversation today Simon we spoke earlier on about the RNCM festival and that's one example of an event which has returned this year you're speaking about lots of potential projects there and they sound so very exciting so is it fair to say you have some grounds for optimism after this really challenging period now as we look ahead? Like everyone else, I lost all of my work during the, the first part of the pandemic. And I, I had to think of ways to survive, you know. So I started doing a lot of I started doing a lot of online music, I started doing a lot more production, and through that, some work that I'd never thought I would be involved in came my way. I ended up writing two film scores for um, interactive films, which is kind of a new thing that's taken off, um, where films are released through game engines and you can sort of play your way through a real action, a live action film. And I ended up writing two entire soundtracks 
because I was just, you know, I was able to utilize my synthesizers and my rig and just sat at my computer and I didn't have to rely on anyone else to commission it or to play it or, you know, that was really good that that came along. But weirdly, I think since things have opened up, I think, I think I've actually come out of this better than I went in. I'm not quite sure. That feels like a big statement, but um, I had a big orchestral arrangement gig which happened in the summer, last summer, which was, uh, so my, my orchestra, the Parallax Orchestra, we play behind rock and metal bands. And there's a, there's a UK band uh, called Architects who are a huge metal band and they're, and they're absolutely great. Really, really lovely people and really great music. And they, they I wrote all the, so I work in a studio often and through that studio, I wrote all the strings and brass for their album, which went to number one. And off the back of that, they commissioned me to basically do an orchestral version of the entire record, uh, which I did. And that took, that was like three months of, of solid writing. And then we, me and my orchestra and the band Architects, we performed the entire orchestral version of their album at Room One Abbey Road last summer. And that recently got that re recently went out uh, in December as a live stream you could watch. Um, and so things like that, like being able to keep some level of work going, I think have ended up putting me in a slightly better position than I was before because I was able to somehow keep working. Certainly, the start of that year, I, I had nothing. All my work went, but I managed to pick up some some pieces, and um, somehow, I'm still going. Yeah, and and I, 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 there's a chance I think that there might be some some really cool work on, on the on the horizon. And I'm hoping that it's gonna be possible for me to keep working, which is pretty much really all I've ever wanted. Like everyone wants to be respected and everyone wants to make good art, but really I just wanna be able to work. I just wanna be able to keep making music. Um, and I, I think if, if there's hope to do that, then that's hope enough. That's it for this episode of BB On The Record. Thanks to Simon Dobson and thank you to you for listening. You can enjoy a digital subscription to British Bandsman. It costs just £42.99 for one year. For the latest news and interviews, make sure you don't miss out. Go to BritishBandsman.com and click on subscribe. As for this podcast, you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify. Or just ask your smart speaker to play the BB On The Record podcast. Please leave a review if you can, the more the merrier. Join me next time on BB On The Record. Bye for now.